Good morning, church. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Amen. Thank you, Lily Grace, for reading those first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. This morning, I'm just going to preach from verses 4 through 7, but Lily Grace, uh, we asked her to do that to give you a little bit more of the context. So let me pray, and then let's turn to the Lord's Word in Ephesians chapter 2. Father, we rejoice that our relationship with you does not finally depend on us. But it depends on a God rich in mercy and great in love. Who, while we were still dead in sin, made us alive together with Christ. Lord Jesus, we worship you this morning for your victory over sin and death and Satan and Holy Spirit, we thank you for uniting us to Christ's victory, to his resurrection, through the gospel, by faith. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would strengthen us by your word this morning, that you would lift up Christ for all to see, and that you would work to help us see him in a way we've never seen him before. We pray these things in his name. Amen. You're not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. <laughs> this statement by D.A. Carson reveals how immensely personal the resurrection of Jesus really is. Jesus' resurrection is not just a true historic fact we celebrate. And it's certainly not just an abstract concept for us to consider. Jesus' resurrection is personal. The Bible teaches that we are caught up in and joined to and united to Christ's victory over sin and death and Satan. That by faith we access the victory that Christ has won in our place. And therefore, Jesus' resurrection is a guarantee for us that the suffering that we experience in this life, any suffering that we experience in this life, whether it be disasters in nature or disease and death in our bodies or the sinful disobedience of ourselves or the people around us, none of these things will have the final word. Instead, our future is tied up with Jesus' victory. And what we'll see this morning is not merely that we will experience this victory in the future, though we will in total. But this is also a present tense victory for the church. There is an opportunity for us to taste in advance what we will drink in full on that day in the future. And I don't mean by that that Christ will make us rich and happy and powerful. What I mean by that is that there is a connection between what Christ has begun and what we will experience in the future. Our connection with Christ means that we will start to taste what we will fully experience one day in the future. And so we can fight sin with earnestness. We can endure suffering with joy. We can share the gospel with confidence. We can pray with expectation. We can worship with hope. We can stare at death with utter peace. My prayer this week has been that we would leave this morning rejoicing 
that God rich in mercy and God great in love has raised us up and seated us with Jesus. And all of this is by grace. So just two brief points this morning. First, that God made us alive in Christ. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. If you're not familiar with the Bible, there's a pew Bible in the, under the chair in front of you. And Ephesians is near the end of the Bible. You can work your way back a few books and find Ephesians. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul makes it clear that God made us alive in Christ. Now in verses 1 through 3, just before we get to our passage, Paul makes our situation clear. One author has summarized verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 2 this way. We were dead, that is, in sins. We were disobedient from, by God. We were demonic in that we followed Satan's leadership in the world. And we were destined for God's wrath, God's judgment. Now, God is not saying in Ephesians 1 through 3 that we are as bad as we could be. He's not saying that each person who walks the earth is equally bad. But even still, this is a stark picture of humanity, and it's hard for our hearts and minds to agree with this, to agree with God that our situation is as bleak as Ephesians 1, 2, 1 to 3 would have us believe. Here in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is willing, arrogant rebellion against God. Here we have deep spiritual deception. Here we have passions gone mad. It's the same message that Paul gives in Romans chapter 3, where he summarizes various Old Testament passages to help us feel the weight of our position before God. None is righteous. No, not, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul in Romans 3 and in Ephesians 2 is telling us the truth about what's the reality in each of our hearts if we are not yet finding ourselves in Christ. And this sobering reality is what makes God's initiative so staggering. Look at the first two words of verse 4 of Ephesians 2. But God. There was no hope in the world but God. There's no hope for us in our own hearts but God. Those words bring a rushing sense of anticipation. Might God intervene? Might God lean in and act on our behalf? Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Why does God act towards sinners who are running in the opposite direction of him? Because of his rich mercy and because of the great love that he loved us with. God's mercy, that is his compassion, 
is rich, it's abundant, it's lavish, it's beyond generous. And God's love, that is his affection toward us, is great. His love toward us is a great love. It's pulsating and intense. That's why God acts. That's why he intervenes. That's why he intervenes in our lives. It's why he inclines himself towards us. It's why he listens because of his rich mercy and his great love. That's why God acts. God's actions toward us overflow from his merciful, loving heart. When does God act? Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, our sins, our rebellion, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. When does God act? He acts when we stop rebelling. He acts when we clean ourselves up. No. No, he acts when we are dead in our trespasses. We are dead in sins. We were dead, not distracted, dead. Not merely broken, we were dead in our sins. We were lifeless corpses. We had no inclination to move toward God at all. We had no ability to please God at all. But God, God intervenes. And when we were running from Him, He makes the first move. He reaches out to us. He grabs our hand. It's as if he touches our chin gently and raises our gaze to meet his own. God found us covered in our sin, dripping and stained in our rebellion against him. We were ruined sinners. A hymn we sang on Friday night says that we were guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was He. Full redemption. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. God regenerates us. He makes us alive with Christ. He initiates so that we can respond with faith. That's what Hebrews, that's what Ephesians 2.8 says. He initiates, we respond with faith. We make a decision to anchor ourselves in Christ. Jesus illustrates this miracle of making us alive by urging Nicodemus to be born a second time. And Nicodemus is as confused as we are, but he's telling us, be born again. Peter and John borrow Jesus' language and repeat it often in their New Testament writings. In Titus, Paul says this, God saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He has made us alive. We were dead, and He has made us alive. And because of this initiative, it's as if we awake from a dream and see for the first time ever life as it really is. And Jesus, who in the dream maybe seemed boring or disinteresting or perhaps demanding or even tolerant, becomes to us irresistibly compelling when we awake from the dream. Jesus, who was totally irrelevant, now becomes the most compelling thing in our lives. In a moment, he begins to be more precious to us than anything in creation. 
The words of the Bible suddenly come alive. God is speaking to us. And when we see this ancient book and when we read it, we feel God is speaking to me. By faith, we sink our anchor deep in Christ and we determine to turn our back on the world and to embrace Jesus alone. So friend, have you been saved by God? Have you received this undeserved, thunderous gift from God? You have no need to clean yourself up before you come. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Every Christian in this room came as a sinner to Christ. So you can come with your biggest mistake. You can come with the things in your past that you've been too ashamed to raise with any other person in your life. How do I know? How do I know that you can come without cleaning yourself up? How do I know? In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is having dinner in the home of a religious leader. And into the home comes a woman. And Luke describes the woman for us as a sinner, or he identifies her as a sinner. And this woman kneels at Jesus' feet in the middle of the dinner. And with her tears, she wets Jesus' feet. And then with her hair, she cleans Jesus' feet. And then she takes an alabaster jar of ointment and she dumps it on Jesus' feet and she anoints him. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, he didn't say it out loud, he said it to himself, if this man were a prophet, if Jesus were actually a prophet speaking on behalf of God, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, I don't think that this man intended to be self-righteous, but he did miss the point of Jesus' coming. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus, knowing what the Pharisee had thought to himself quietly in his own mind, tells him a story. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Don't you love the succinctness of Jesus? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. He would be the one Who's more glad? Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. Now here's the point. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And Jesus says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see it? The more we understand our sin, the more humbly and desperately we come to God for mercy. 
and the greater our love and gladness is over that mercy. Our sins, no matter how many, no matter how awful, cannot disqualify us from God's grace. In fact, Jesus says in this story, the more we've been forgiven, the greater love we'll have for him. Acknowledging our need thrusts us to the feet of Jesus. Our sins do not need to keep us from God's grace. But when we come, when we genuinely come, we will long to be free of them. When we come, we will long for the filthy rags to be replaced with the righteousness of Jesus. And this only grows over time. His staggering grace makes us hungry to delight in Him by turning from our sins to trust Him. And I want you to know that this message only becomes sweeter the more you hear it. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All could never sin erase. Thou must save and save by grace. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great... But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. But there's more. It's not merely that God has raised us up in Christ. It's that he will seat us in heaven with Christ. And that's verses 6 and 7. Look at verse 6 of Ephesians chapter 2. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There are two main verbs in this part of the sentence, raised up and seated with. Raised up and seated with. Now, who does the raising and who does the seating? God the Father is the actor. This sentence goes all the way back to but God in verse 4. God the Father is doing the raising and the seating. Who, though, is being raised and seated? We are. We who were made alive with Christ... We who were dead in our sins are not only being saved, but we are being raised and seated. Now, where are we being raised and seated? In the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. So then where is Christ seated if we're going to be raised up with him? Here's a string of verses. Ephesians 1. God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Hebrews 1.3, after making purifications from sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
Hebrews 8.1, we have such a great high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Hebrews 10.12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 12.2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy who was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 1 Peter 3, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to them. This is not an obscure doctrine. Twelve times in the New Testament, we find Jesus seated in power at the right hand of the Father. Even while I speak, Jesus sits at the right hand of God. And his presence there specifically indicates that he has already won the victory. He sits in authority over every power and every dominion. He sits in victory over every enemy. And not only in this age, but in the age to come. And when Jesus returns, hear this, when Jesus returns, his enemies, already defeated, will experience the defeat that Jesus has already won. So what does Paul mean then when he says, you Christians have been seated already with Christ in the heavenly places. It means that we are seated with him in victory. He's already won the battle. He's already secured the victory. And we experience a foretaste of that victory now. And we anticipate the final victory then when he returns. So let's think about this practically. When you throw down your phone in frustration because of your sin, you remember that you are seated with Christ. And so genuinely repent and savor his forgiveness and then receive his power to put your sin to death. When you walk out of the doctor's office with the cancer diagnosis ringing in your ears, you remember you've been raised with Christ. You can maintain a loose grip on your body knowing that the resurrection is near. When you stand at the graveside on their birthday, you remember that you've been seated with Christ and that one day the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. When you agonize over their rejection of Jesus, you remember that you are seated with Christ and that the Spirit is powerfully at work in the world, drawing people from darkness to life. Keep praying. When you withstand stiff resistance for following Jesus in this world, you remember you've been seated with Christ. And one day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. When you endure the shameful attacks of our enemy Satan, so gleefully reminding you of every failure from your past, you remember you've been seated with Christ and there is now no condemnation for those who are in him. Jesus sits in victory. And God has raised you up and seated you with him in the heavenly places. We must remember that we've already been swept up in his victory. It's already ours. And by his Holy Spirit's power, we can experience a foretaste of that victory in this life.
And we, but we must also remember that we will one day experience it in fullness, a full, total, complete victory where we, that we can experience is coming. Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages, that is, the eternal ages, the eternal kingdom, God might show us, those who are raised with Christ, the immeasurable riches of his grace. Unimaginable rewards are coming to you, Christian. No eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't think of yourself as a Christian. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian. We're glad you're here. We've been praying that you would come. And here is Satan's oldest tactic, confusing us between the things that are seen and the things that we can't see. He holds up a world, a creation with shining treasures and with significant costs if we're to turn away from them and trust Christ and he calls on us to see them as ultimate. Part of what it means to come to Christ is to commit to seeing the world from his perspective. To see that the things that we can see in this life, the good things, they're transient. But the things that are coming, the things that are unseen, the unseen realities that are true are eternal realities. So the question is, are you going to build your life on what you can see that's transient and momentary? Or will you build your life on the things that are eternal that will be everlasting in the heavens? Long for Christ's appearing. Long for the coming ages where he will show us immeasurable grace. Long to be with the bridegroom. Long to be in the Father's eternal city. Long for the Spirit's unfettered presence in our life. Long for the day when our faith will be supplanted and replaced by sight. Here's the constant challenge for the church. How do we live well in the time that God has called us to live? How do we live well as his people in the world? We live between the first and second comings of Christ. How do we live with expectant hope and with unshakable joy? One answer is that God rich in mercy and great in love, while we were still dead in our sins, raised us up with Jesus, made us alive in Christ, and sat us already in heaven with Christ. So as we press ahead in the face of trials of various kinds, we do so with deep-seated rejoicing. The King is risen. Jesus has won, and we are with Him. We are caught up with Him. You are not suffering from anything. A good resurrection can't fix. So rejoice. God, rich in mercy and great in love, has raised us up with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we 
rejoice over your victory. And I pray that we would leave here this morning persuaded that your resurrection is deeply personal to us. It's not theory. It's not history. It is our present. It's our very life and it's our future. And so I pray that as we stand and sing, you would help these truths to be pressed deep within our hearts in the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in the name of our victorious King Jesus. Amen.